Why does Christian doctrine matter in our everyday lives of faith? Cynthia Rigby is the W.C. Brown Professor of Theology at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Austin, Texas. Cindy is a graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary, where she earned an MDiv and PhD. In this episode, Cindy and I discuss her book, Holding Faith, A Practical Introduction to Christian Doctrine. We explore how various understandings of particular doctrines play out in our daily lives and why theology matters to those who claim to follow God. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Cindy, thank you for joining me today to talk about your new book, Holding Faith. Can you tell me, who did you have in mind when you were writing this book? Who did you write it for? Well, Dale, I've always had a love for lay people and new theology students. So I was writing it for first-year seminary students, maybe college students and lay people who are interested in knowing more about theology. That's great. Now, theology is often characterized as being irrelevant or out of touch with real life or the real practice of ministry. People think of it as, you know, scholars sitting in their rooms thinking big thoughts and it doesn't have anything to do with real life. But you're not convinced by this. Why not? That's a great question, Dale, for a couple of reasons. One is that people keep showing up to learn and talk more about theology It's very rarely that someone tells me they want to know less about where we got the doctrine of the Trinity or the idea of the Mm -hmm. incarnation. It's very rarely that people tell me they don't care why we say Jesus is fully human and fully divine. They always want to talk about these things. And I think of those Mm -hmm. of us who teach and preach and those of us who are disciples of Jesus Christ should be ready. The Bible tells us We should be ready to give to anyone who asks an account of the hope that is in us. And frankly, it's fun (laughs) to do. And I find when I visit churches, it's a lot of fun to talk with people. So that's that's really my experience. I, I don't like all the talk of the demise of the church, the demise of the church. I mean, we've got to deal with declining numbers. But the fact is, there are a lot of people who show up and want something to happen. And that's where we should put the bulk of our energy. And this isn't really, it's not a new idea that theology might be sort of irrelevant or for the big thinkers. Like where where does the idea come from? Well, I think that sometimes we forget what motivated the early Christian forebearers to discuss difficult issues. For example, uh, in 451, Mm -hmm. There was a conference called the Council of Chalcedon. That's the conference where we made the decision that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. And when you start reading the documents Mm -hmm. uh, from the 5th century all the way now in the 21st century, sometimes they can seem a little abstract and a little uh, ivory tower-ish until you remember that what motivated those people to get together and think about these issues was wanting to understand their faith better. They wanted to understand what it meant to confess Jesus as Lord, what it meant to say that he was of the same stuff or substance as the Father, and they were working it out. We've received that inheritance, but sometimes it would be uh, worth our while Mm -hmm. to go back and, and look at what the heartbeat is underneath the words. So that's what I like to do, think about the so what of doctrine. Yeah. Yeah. And the questions we have today, many or most have likely been asked before. Oh, sure. 
Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where these things, that's where these doctrines come from, with the seeking and the asking the same questions that we have today. That's right. And a lot of the yeah. criticisms we have today of certain doctrines are not new. For example, uh, there's a mm -hmm. lot of criticism these days of substitutionary atonement. And that's not a new thing in the land. And Anselm of Canterbury wrote a book in the 13th century and Abelard, Peter Abelard, criticized his ideas and said, uh, I don't understand what that God is you're talking about. How could a father send his son to die on the cross? That doesn't make sense. So those guys had healthy arguments about issues like atonement that sometimes we think uh, are brand new <laughs> things in the land. That's right. That's right. In the book, you're also convinced that theological language matters. For example, you say that using terms like grace instead of more immediately accessible terms is important. Why is that? Because, Dale, we have something unique to offer the world as Christian believers. I can be very concrete about the grace example as a way of illustrating uh, why we need to uh, hold on to the language that names the mystery that is the content of our faith. The contemporary mm -hmm. English version of the New Testament takes the word grace out of the translation because they correctly, I think, understand that there's no comparable idea in human experience to the grace of God. So in Ephesians mm -hmm. 2, which traditionally has been translated for by grace you've been saved through faith. Uh, the translation reads something like, for out of God's great kindness, you've been saved uh, by God who treats us much better than we deserve. Now that's perfectly understandable language, but you and I can mm -hmm. treat each other much better than either of us deserves. Uh, but God is even more than that even more than our kindness times 10 million billion grace isn't about deserving or undeserving it's in a whole different category so the big question in theology is how do we honor the distinctive qualitative difference of what it is that god is like and who god is for us and the theological language gives us a portal into that so i think it's worth grappling with and struggling with because it helps us uh, participate in the mystery that is God and the mystery that is our faith. So as some people might think that very theological language is a barrier to faith and understanding, you're making the argument that it's really the portal through which we can understand. That's a very good summary. I think the key is to, to, to use it as a story in the context of the story. Mm -hmm. So I had an editor say to me once, Cindy, you can use any theological jargon you want, as long as you're not dictating it to people from a, from a distance, you know, but, but, but talk mm -hmm. incarnationally and talk about the place that this, these terms have in our shared story and people eat it up. And I found that that's the case. I've got a lot of compliments on the book for the uh, table of content, not the table of contents, the index at the end and the, yeah, that people yeah, yeah. can use to kind of gain access. I had a great research assistant named Pam Jarvis who helped me with that. So, you know, what is the goal of doing theology, like we like to say? What's its, what's its purpose? That's another great question. I remember a few years ago, I was reading Annie Dillard's book, Living by Fiction. 
And she was talking mm-hmm. along about how we all like to be experts in something. We need to, we all like to be able to say everything there is about something. And then she kind of paused and said, but what people really want to know is not everything about something. They want to know something about everything. Hmm. And I think the purpose of theology is to say something about everything, namely that God loves us, Mm -hmm. that despite appearances to the contrary, terrorism, fear, political strife, global warming, coronavirus, uh, God is faithful still. And that's a hard message, but it's basically, that's the center of all theology to talk about the character of God and God's faithfulness. And that's something um, that we need to do boldly. But sometimes with more deep, we can't only say that we have to speak to the detail in order to find different ways, again, different portals into that truth. So are we willing to say something about everything? That's what theology is, uh, is in the business of doing. Yeah, I know someone who once said that the, the work of a seminary graduate was to be thinking about everything all of the time. (laughs) That's beautiful. So what you do in this book is you touch on um, various doctrines, and it's great. It's ordered um, in a terrific way. It's accessible. Um, We can't talk about all of them because you bring up the doctrine of revelation, scripture, incarnation, trinity, creation, sin and salvation, um, the doctrine of the church and of the Christian life and Christian hope and Christian vocation. So um, just for the sake of today, I thought we'd pick one or two and ask you a couple questions um, instead of trying to instead of trying to do it like we just said, we're, you know, theology okay. is thinking about everything. We're not going to think about everything in this conversation. So tell me, um, I think something that people of faith and people outside the church wrestle with is is the Trinity. So tell me, you know, why the doctrine of the Trinity matters for Christian faith and um for the church. Sure. Uh, the structure of the book, uh, by the way, if I could just say one word about that, I, I do a lot at the beginning on just why we can talk about God at all and why it's important to do theology yes. for not only I, you know, professional theologians, but all of us as people of faith are theologians. We're all called to speak about God. But then the four main sections are pretty accessibly titled, I think. It's God meets us, Mm -hmm. God makes us, God blesses us, God sends us. And they each have uh, questions at the end of each chapter that people have been using for study. So so I kind of group doctrines, incarnation and trinity is about how God meets us. And then I won't go through all of it, but the other Mm -hmm. doctrines are grouped under God makes us, God blesses us, God sends us. So the trinity question would be in the kind of the second part after what is theology, God meets us. So that there built into that is mm-hmm. kind of a beginning answer to your question. Sometimes people think of the doctrine of the Trinity as though God is way off on a cloud somewhere. And the beautiful hymn, Holy, 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 mm-hmm. Lord God Almighty, is so awesome. Mm-hmm. But I think sometimes you exactly. get the sense that God is, uh, we're, we're, we're praising the God who is all in all, up in heaven. And that's true. But the doctrine of the Trinity Mm -hmm. isn't only about God and God's self. As Father, Son, and Spirit, Creator, Redeemer, Sustainer, God has also entered into time, into history, into creation with us to meet us, right? To meet us. Mm -hmm. So there's a a correlation between Mm -hmm. Trinity and Incarnation. God 
pitches God's tent among us, John 1, 14. God acts in relation to our lives uh, in all kinds of ways mm-hmm. as, as the triune God. And the neat thing about that um, is that when we know God is Father, Son, and Spirit, not only in relation to us, creating, redeeming, and sustaining us, for example, but also in God's own life. The word in Greek is perichoresis, dancing around, right? God is sharing mm-hmm. life with God's self. Mm-hmm. We remember that the one of the so what's of the Trinity is that God isn't a monad sitting on a throne somewhere, off in a distance, you know, like the Bette Midler song, God is watching us, God is watching us, but God is actually yes. related in God's own being. So in other words, when, when God enters into this universe, God isn't leaving God's self to become something different than who God is in God's own life. We know God truly as creator, redeemer, and sustainer because we confess in a triune God, faith in a triune God who is uh, friends with God's self, in a sense, in community with God's self. How have you seen this doctrine make a difference in real life? I I once, actually, I came to Princeton years ago at the start of my teaching career to teach in the Summer Institute. I don't think you have that anymore, but 25 years ago you had a Summer Institute, and it's probably the first time I ever did a workshop on the Trinity. And I really, I remember just knocking myself out, trying to get to the aha. By aha, I mean, so what? And I got a letter from a woman who was 76 years old after I got back home. And she was actually kind of angry. She said, I've been going to church my whole entire life. And if someone had told me this, it would have changed everything for me. Why didn't anyone tell me about the significance of the Trinity uh, before now? Now, I'm not saying people hadn't told her, but something at that conference clicked with her. Mm. And she went on. It was a long letter. She said, I always thought of God as being self-sufficient, which God is, by the way, but Mm -hmm. but, and at a distance. And I had to walk around on tinterhooks, on eggshells, trying to keep God happy with me. But now I know that I, I was walking around my whole life with the wrong conception of God. Uh, Dan Migliori says in his book, Faith Seeking Mm -hmm. Understanding, that once you think about the implications of the doctrine of the Trinity, you understand what it says in 1 John, which is God is love. God in God's very being is in God's ontology love. And that was the aha that this woman had at the end of her life. One more short story. Uh, This is my own experience. I always yeah. knew that God did things for me, Yeah, did things for me. And I was always taught to, to thank God for all that God had, had done. Count your many blessings, you know, kind of thing. But I realized once I started reflecting, mm-hmm. uh, meditating on the reality of God's uh, triune life, that God does things for us, not because God is going out of God's way. God doesn't need to, but God goes out of God's way anyhow. But rather, God does things for us as an extension of God's own self, as an extension of God's love. Because God is for us, God does things for us. I I tell a story about Mm -hmm. my mom. When I was a teenager, I, um, 
I was trying to distance myself from my parents. And I, so I was really good, got all good grades, was well behaved. Mm -hmm. When they asked me what I did at school, I'd say things like, well, I went to social studies, I went to band, I went to English class, but they didn't really want to report. But they couldn't yell at me because I was technically answering their question. And one night my mom made all my favorite foods and I ate the dinner and I helped clear the table. And I looked at my mother and I said, mom, thank you for doing that for me. Exit stage mm -hmm. left. I left the kitchen. My mom yelled at me, Cynthia Lynn Rigby, you come back here right now, young lady. She said, don't you dare thank me for doing things for you. Don't you realize I'm not doing things for you. You're a part of me. And that's the difference in our, own, in our human relationships between doing things for each other out of contractual relationships, um, out of politeness, and doing things for each other because we truly are for each other. That's who God is. God is my mother yeah. doing things for me because she is for me. And because we participate in the triune life of God, we can live freely as those who serve one another in love. I'm going to shift to some of the things you discuss when you talk about the doctrine of Christian life. You use the image of jumping into a pool to describe the experience of life with God. What's helpful about that image? Well, I use it primarily to describe what, as a metaphor for participating in swimming in the grace of God. I'm trying to figure out, grace is a, is a tough sell. For the same reason the CEV takes it out of the Bible, I'm trying to figure out how to talk about something that has no analogies or very few analogies. So I've been um, thinking of a giant baptismal font or a mm -hmm. swimming pool, or someone uh, in the Midwest told me I should talk about a, uh, what is it called, a stock tank. <laughs> and you've obviously got the baptism imagery, remembering our baptism is living, yeah. soaking wet, right? It messes with your hair. It's, it, you know, for me anyway, it's a pain to go swimming in the middle of the day because you have to get redressed. It yeah. undoes us. So uh, uh, I, I just think it's hard to stay in the pool of grace. Even if we've been swimming in it, um, my own testimony is I look up and I find out I'm I'm completely dry six feet from the edge of the pool and I don't even remember getting out. And then I've got to go over to the edge and get back, get wet again and jump in. So I just use it as a metaphor for um, maybe it's what Tony Campolo says uh, about living sacrifices. Mm -hmm. He says the problem with living sacrifices is they keep jumping off the altar. <laughs> the problem with living in grace is we keep crawling back out of the pool that, that's where I use the water imagery for specifically um, how, do, how do we live in light of this reality that we are loved unconditionally. Uh, judgment is a piece of cake compared to grace. Living with under grace is the hard is the hard part. So I'm working on a book on grace and play right now. Is my next book. It's called something like Splashing in Grace: A Theology of Play. That sounds great. I have one last question for you. You mentioned that um, you believe Christians are called to live in freedom rather than out of obligation. What does that mean and what does it look like in real life? It looks like those dumb sheep in Matthew 25, Dale. They say, huh? Huh? When did we do that? And if we're reading that text with uh, empathy, we're probably saying, go through the gates, go through the gates before you get found out, right? 
but they th- those sheep honestly don't yeah. think they've done yeah. anything because they've been so they've done it out of being for the other who they help just as i was talking about god for us doing things because god is with and for us i mean the best mm-hmm. days of our lives the moments we're free is when we act lovingly toward others because we love them not because it would be a good thing to do right <laughs> when i when i load the dishwasher for my family as an extension of being for them rather yeah. than grumbling yeah. this is a hard thing for me to do when i'm teaching my students uh, not because I'm going to be evaluated at the end of the semester, but because I love them. I want to teach them. I want, I'm connected to them. I'm dancing perichoretically with them because together we reflect the image of the triune mm-hmm. God. But this is, this is hard to do in our world because it's hard enough to live in a contractual relationship with people. How do we live in a covenantal relationship? It's uh, that parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. It's the elder son. If we could all be elder sons, the world would be a wonderful place. We'd be responsible. We'd keep our end of the deal. God would give us a party that we deserved. The elder son is right. But what God calls us to is an entirely different way of being, the order of grace, even above the order of justice. To live freely is to... Mm is to serve one another without even knowing we're serving one another. So, I mean, you see it reflected colloquially. If, if you say to me, Cindy, thank you for doing X, Y, and Z. And I say, oh, it was nothing. It was my pleasure. In French, de rien. It was nothing. Um, but how often do we really feel that way? <laughs> we, we go and put it on our list of accomplishments or report it at our biannual evaluation. Even seminaries and churches run in the ways of the world in contractual ways. Even classrooms where we're teaching the content is about grace, but you're grading, you're marking people late for uh, turning in papers late. I mean, grace is very impractical. We've got to figure out how it hits the ground, right? That's what freedom is about, I think. That's great. That's right. So anything else you want people to know about this book or a a takeaway or... I've been humbled by how many different groups of people have been using Holding Faith in classes and Sunday school classes. I was at a Baptist school a couple weeks ago, Campbell University, um, and they were using Holding Mm -hmm. Faith in a class. And then I was at a Methodist uh, uh, church and Presbyterian. It's really a great thing when Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians are reading the same book, I think. And there are lots of uh, uh, conversations going on that bring us together. So I'm glad Holding Faith has had that impact. And I'm working on some videos that people can use to teach Holding Faith. I've been asked to do that. So there'll be videos for each chapter that people can use in Sunday school classes and maybe a study guide too. I'll let you know when we get those out. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Cindy, thank you for, for this today. Thank you, Dale. It's been my honor to be on this podcast. And thanks to everyone for listening. You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Interviews are conducted by me, Dale Rounds. And me, Sherry Osting. Our producer is Nee Otto Abrams, and our assistant producer is Amara Peterman. The Distillery is part of The Thread, an online platform with resources on culture, spiritual formation, and leadership. To find out more, visit thethread.ptsem.edu. 
You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. And while you're at it, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. Until next time, thanks for listening.